0: Well, you guessed it. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of James. While you're turning there, let me let you know about a couple of things that are going on at Coastal. Uh, This Saturday, we've got a few things going on. First of all, fellas, we have the men's breakfast this Saturday morning at 7 a.m. So set your alarms and come on out. Don and the guys always do an awesome job getting a delicious homemade breakfast for us. We have a good time of fellowship and some time in the Word. We'd love to see all the guys out here on uh, Saturday morning at 7 a.m., $5 suggested donation for that. And then later in the morning, uh, we have our food mission this Saturday at our Yorktown campus from 9 to 11. Guys, we have such an awesome food ministry here at Coastal. We have the opportunity to feed hundreds of families every month through our food mission, and we can always use more volunteers. So if you're interested in serving in that way, go slash food. We'd love for you to serve with our food mission. Wanted to let you know about our LVR camp for our students. Uh, Longview Ranch, that'll be June 20th through 25th. I'm already thrilled. We already have a great group of students going, Uh, but it's not too late. So middle and high school students, if you're interested in going to camp, we would love for you to come. Uh, They've extended the deadline for early bird pricing for another week. So that'll be next Sunday. So if you want more information, gocoastal.org slash summer events or grab Pastor Steve after the service. He'd be glad to get you more info about camp. And last but not least, I wanna keep on your radar. Sunday, June 26th, the last Sunday in June is gonna be our family Sunday where we're gonna celebrate communion together. We're gonna have baptism. We're going to... Uh, Do family dedications. So uh, first of all, if you're interested in participating in our family dedication, where our uh, parents come up and stand here with their children, dedicate their family to the Lord, if you're interested in participating in that, uh, you can go ahead and sign up. You can write that on your Connect card. You can sign up online. You do have to be a member of Coastal Church to participate in the family dedication. Uh, And then finally, if you want to get baptized, I'd be thrilled if everyone in here who has not followed the Lord and Believer's Baptism would do that. So we do have baptism also at that service. You can sign up on your Connect card or online to be baptized. All righty, James chapter one. We are starting this new sermon series going through the book of James where we're going to be for the next three months. This is going to take us till about halfway through August. And guys, I got to be honest with you right up front. I love not only the book of James, but this is the kind of preaching that gets me pumped. I love preaching straight through books of the Bible, so I am really excited about this summer to have the opportunity to study this great book with you. But there's another sense in which I'm really not that excited, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, There are some passages of scripture that are like a warm cup of hot cocoa on a winter day. You're sitting by the fire like, oh, this is nice. This is encouraging. James is not like that. Um, So, James isn't just gonna step on your toes. James is gonna drop a cinder block on your toes, like week after week. This book is challenging. Not really that challenging to understand, because James is so blunt. More like challenging to hear, because this book is very practical, very direct. James is gonna tell it like it is, so to speak. And let me give you what I think is the main idea of the book of James. We've entitled this study, Authentic. And I think that James's burden is to show us what an authentic follower of Jesus looks like. And I may have just given it away, but I wanted to start with a little bit of a pop quiz. No uh, staff or elders or deacons or small group leaders, y'all aren't allowed to answer this. Somebody else answer this, all right? What is our mission statement here at Coastal? Anybody? That is how we do our mission statement. That's our vision. That's like the strategy. But what is the mission statement? authentic followers of Jesus Christ. You knew that. So we do that by connect, grow, serve. Thank you, Sadie. But our mission is to develop authentic followers of Jesus Christ, not just any old followers of Jesus Christ, but authentic ones. To be authentic means to be genuine. It means to be real. It means to be transparent. It means something that is real as opposed to something that is fake. We believe in the importance of authenticity, and we see this in our own lives, don't we? I mean, if you were to buy a piece of merchandise that was autographed, what is the one thing you want to make sure you get with it? A certificate of authenticity. Why? Because if you don't have that and you can't prove that it's authentic, then that signature is worthless because any old forger could have just signed it. We need the authentic, the the authentication of the certificate in the same way. I think what James is teaching us is that if our faith is not authentic, it is worthless. If our faith in Jesus is something that is merely a box that we check, it is merely words that we say, but it doesn't change our life, then it's not worth anything. James is challenging us in a very direct and powerful way to have a faith that is authentic, a faith that changes our life, a faith that works. And so this morning, as we're going to look at the first paragraph in the book, in the first four verses, we are going to see what authentic faith looks like in the midst of trials. We're going to see what authentic faith looks like in trials. James begins in verse two by saying, "'Count out our joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds.'" The reality is, we live in a broken and sinful world, and we are all going to face trials of various kinds. And he says the really crazy thing that we're supposed to count it joy when that happens. So, why should we have joy? In trials. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And as we're getting into it, I came across this quote yesterday afternoon. So preachers, it's never too late. Uh, And I thought it was so good I had to have it in the intro because this quote encapsulates everything I want to say this morning but says it much better than me. And so, of course, it's from Spurgeon. Uh, It says this, No flowers wear so lovely a blue as those which grow at the foot of the frozen glacier. No stars gleam so brightly as those which glisten in the polar sky. No water tastes so sweet as that which springs amid the desert sand, and no faith is so precious as that which lives and triumphs in adversity. Tried faith brings experience, and this is my favorite sentence. You could not have believed your own weakness had you not been compelled to pass through the rivers, and you would never have known God's strength had you not been supported amid the water floods." Faith increases in solidity, assurance, and intensity the more it is exercised with tribulation. Faith is precious, and its trial is precious too. I love the idea. You would never have known your own weakness if God had not brought you into a trial, but you also would never have known God's strength if you hadn't needed to be supported by him through it. And so what I want us to see this morning, here's the main point. We can have joy in trials because God is at work to make us more like Jesus. We can have joy in trials because God is at work to make us more like Jesus, because we know that God is doing something in the trials to make us more like his son. So with this in mind, let's start by just looking at the first verse together. James 1.1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we, we come to a text like this and as we're gonna reflect on the trials that we all face, Lord. I know as I look around this room, there are many of us in this room, Lord, perhaps all of us to one degree or another who are facing trials of various kinds, Lord. And the idea of having joy in the midst of trial, Lord, that does not come naturally to us. That does not seem normal, Lord. That is something that requires faith. So Lord, would you strengthen our faith today? Would you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to behold wondrous things out of your word this morning? Lord, as we just sang about, would you help us to become more like Jesus that we would be out of the way and to have more of you in our lives? We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. So I'd like to begin this morning by breaking down verse one and talking about the book of James together as a whole as we begin this sermon series together. The first 10 minutes, we're gonna be getting into some background information on the book of James. And now before you tune out, I think this is important, all right? As we're gonna study this book for the next three months, this is the stuff that you need to keep in the back of your mind with every single verse that we read in this letter. So let's talk about the book of James for a minute. And let's start with the very first word in the book. The first word of the first verse is James. Now, here's another pop quiz. I don't think you need to know Greek for this one. Don't need to go to seminary for this one. You ready? Who wrote the book of James? Anybody? You know, Scott Owsley said John in the first service, just to call him out. Uh, He got an F for that one. Now, it was James, but the question is a little trickier than that, because there's like four James in the New Testament. Okay, so we're talking about James, the one who is the half-brother of Jesus. If you don't know why he's the half-brother instead of the full-brother, we'd love to see you at Christmas time, and we'll get into that. So this James is the half-brother of Jesus, and I'd like to give you a little bit of information about James's life. Let's do a quick bio on James. So first of all, during his earthly ministry, James did not believe in Jesus. He wasn't buying into the hype. This is what it says in John 7, 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. So you've got him, he's skeptical. He sees his older brother going around doing all this stuff. He doesn't believe in him. But then the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, lists James as an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. And now seeing your sibling get crucified and then come back to life has an effect on a person. So then this is what we see in Acts 1.14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So after the death and resurrection of Jesus, James, along with the rest of the family, become followers of Jesus. And if you keep reading in the book of Acts, particular chapters 12 and 15, we see that James rose to prominence in the early church and became one of the most influential leaders in the early church. He became the senior pastor, if you will, in the church in Jerusalem. And Paul recognizes James alongside Peter and John as like the three most influential guys in the church. He calls them pillars. This is what Galatians 2.9 says. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, Perceived the, right hand, the perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship, so on and so forth. The point there being, even Paul is recognizing James as an influential leader in the early church. Now to get outside of scripture and get a bit into church tradition, he was nicknamed James the Just because he had a reputation for his high moral character. He, one writer said that he had knees like a camel because uh, he spent so much time in prayer, so much time on his knees in prayer And eventually, in 62 AD, James became a martyr for the faith. Uh, One writer said that Jewish scribes and Pharisees brought James up to the top of the temple in Jerusalem, and they tried to force him to renounce his faith in Jesus, and he refused. So they threw James off the top of the temple. And James actually survived this fall from a great distance. And so then a mob came and beat him to death with clubs. And while he was being beaten to death, we are told that like his older brother before him, he prayed for those who were persecuting him that they would be forgiven. So this is a quick bio on James's life. Now let's see how James describes himself in James 1.1. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I just gave you James's bio. I just gave you the about me section of his profile. James doesn't do that. All he says is, hey, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that all that he says? Let me give you two thoughts there. First of all, and this is interesting to me, a lot of scholars are like, why wouldn't he mention that he was Jesus's half-brother? I mean, that's kind of a big deal, right? I think what he is emphasizing is that now in Christ, his spiritual relationship to Jesus is more important even than his physical relationship to Jesus. That what is more important is not that he is Jesus' half-brother, but that he is now a brother in Christ with all of Jesus's people. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is this. I think it speaks to his humility. It speaks to his humility. He says, I'm a servant of God. In the Greek, literally, I am a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This should teach us something, especially because we live in a culture that loves to promote ourselves. When we meet people, we have a tendency to want to give them reasons why they should think highly of us right off the bat. We want to make ourselves seem important, so we will give our resume. So we will name drop important people that we know. We will do whatever it takes to make ourselves seem important. Isn't that like the whole point of social media? Right, we try to build a brand and we try to make others think more highly of us and we find our identity often and how many followers we have or how many likes we can get. But what James is teaching us here is none of that matters. At a fundamental level, the most important thing about him is that he was a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that should be enough for us as well. That should teach us something about humility. So that's the author of the book of James. What about the circumstances? What were the circumstances surrounding this letter? Without boring you with the details, I think this letter was written real early, like probably between 44 and 49 AD, before the Jerusalem council of Acts 15. And so I think this was probably the earliest book of the New Testament written. I think this is like the earliest Christian document after the death and resurrection of Jesus that is preserved in scripture. And I think that, um, so yeah, that would be like 10 to 15 years from the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's pretty cool to me. This is super early stuff. And he says, it was written in verse one, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So let me kind of reconstruct what I think is going on here for you. I take this to be a reference to Jewish Christians who were forced to flee Jerusalem after the persecution that began with the stoning of Stephen. So you remember in Acts chapter 6 and 7, you have Stephen, he's raised up, one of the first deacons in the early church. He ends up giving this testimony to Jesus and he's stoned at the end of chapter 7. This is how Acts 8.1 begins. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So here's what I think is going on James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. The church had been seeing great success, lots of people getting saved. And now they have their first martyr. Persecution breaks out, and the church is scattered. And James is writing this letter to the groups of scattered Jewish believers to encourage them in their faith and to challenge them to live authentically in their relationship with Jesus. I think that's the circumstances surrounding this letter. So we have the author, we have the circumstances, and now finally, what is the message? What is the message of the book of James? This book has a reputation rightly earned for being intensely practical. Uh, It's been nicknamed the Proverbs of the New Testament because of how practical this book is. It's not that James isn't concerned with theology. As we go, I think you'll see there's a lot of theology in James, but rather I think the emphasis is more on how the truth that we know about God should manifest itself in our lives should manifest itself in our words and in our actions. The big idea in the book of James is faith that works, faith that leads to action. Think about it this way. Statistically speaking, there's 108 verses in James, and there are over 50 commands. So if you think about it that way, every other verse is a command. It's something that as believers, we are called to do. James was heavily influenced by the teachings of Jesus. He was well-versed in them because he might've heard them personally. Things like the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five through seven. There's all kinds of allusions to the Sermon on the Mount in the book of James. So we'll see that as we go throughout. But if I could summarize James for you in a nutshell, it's this, faith in Jesus should transform our lives. Faith in Jesus is not just a box that we check. It's not just a label that we place on ourselves. It's not just a profession that we make with our mouths. It changes everything about us. And if our faith does not demonstrate itself in action, it's worthless. It's useless. Think about these many passages in James from all over the book. He says, Don't just hear the word, do what it says. He says, if your brother comes to you and he's hungry, don't just say, oh, God bless you, brother, be filled. Feed him. He says things like faith without works is dead. He says, why do you have blessing and cursing coming out of the same mouth? We could keep on multiplying examples, but this is the main theme, faith that leads to action, authentic faith, faith that works. So I love this book. It's incredibly blunt. It's refreshingly applicable and it's intensely personal. And here's my hope and prayer for us as a church family. My hope is that when we finish this book in August, we won't be the same people we are today. That as we're encountering God speaking to us through his words, the Holy Spirit is applying this book to our lives. I pray that it will help us to mature in our faith. It will help us to grow up and it will lead to action in our lives. So now let's continue and let's look at verses two through four together and see what authentic faith looks like in trials. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what does faith look like when you meet trials? What does faith look like when you meet trials? And now right out of the gate, we got to notice that he doesn't say, count it all joy if you meet trials. It is when you meet trials. The Bible is nothing but realistic. It is super realistic because the reality is we live in a broken and in a sinful world. And it is not if you meet trials, it's when. If you haven't had any trials yet, keep on living. Ask somebody who's been around longer than you. You will meet trials in this life of various kinds. And I love that he says various kinds for this reason. I think we'd be tempted to spiritualize this if he didn't. We'd be tempted to look at this and be like, well, I'm not living under active persecution and there's nobody trying to chop my head off, so I have no reason to count what I'm going through as a trial. Well, let's go through the book of James for a moment. What are the trials that he talks about? He talks a lot about poverty and wealth, He talks a lot about persecution connected to poverty and wealth. He talks a lot about sickness, chapter five. He talks about brokenness in our relationships, interpersonal conflict in chapter four. Later in chapter four, he talks about the world and being tempted to be like the world. So let me ask you, you ever been poor? You ever been mistreated? You ever been sick? You ever been in a fight? You ever been tempted to become more like the world? If so, congratulations. Those things count. As various trials, and if I missed one, I think the word various covers it, right? The idea is we all go through trials of various kinds, and he's acknowledging that when you meet trials of various kinds. But he says, and this is the crazy thing, when you do that, I want you to count it all joy. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. The word count is a word that has to do with our mind. It has to do with our thinking, This is important, he's not talking about our feelings yet. He's not saying, listen, when you meet trials of various kinds, I want you to be happy about it. I want you to grin and bear it. I want you to be happy when bad things happen. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to think about it in a joy-filled way. I want you to have a joyful perspective about your trials. And how do we do that? How on earth do we do that? Because when I face trials, let me tell you, joy is not my first reaction. We do that when we learn to value what God is doing in our lives more than our personal comfort, more than our personal ambitions. This is what Warren Wiersbe wrote. Our values determine our evaluations. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value the material and physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and forget the future, the trials will make us bitter, not better. We have to ask the question, what am I valuing here when I am facing a trial above everything else? Am I valuing the work that God is doing in my life or my own desires, my own comforts? That's why I love that song we just sang, more like Jesus, I always get emotional at that line that says, here at your feet, my desires and dreams I lay down. That's a picture of what faith looks like in the midst of a trial. The faith to be able to say, Lord, I'm willing to lay this down at your feet because I trust that you know what you're doing. That's how we can rejoice. And James picked this up from his older brother, Matthew five eleven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! And be glad, count it all joy, disciples, why? For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Even when we're suffering, when we're being mistreated, when people are speaking bad about us, whatever the trial might be, we can rejoice by keeping that eternal perspective that God knows what he's doing and that he is doing something through the trials. This is what James teaches us in verse three. Verse three, he says, count on all joy when you face trials of various tri- kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. If I could summarize the teaching of verse three, it's this, know that God is at work. Know that God is at work. So let's look at verse three together. He begins with, for you know that. Again, we're not talking about feelings yet. He's, he's talking about this is what you know This is what you know to be true. You know that the testing of your faith. Now, it's interesting to me, in verse two, it's a trial. In verse three, it's a test. It's referring to the same thing. So from our perspective, what we're going through is a trial. From God's perspective, he is testing our faith. And this testing, it's something that happens throughout the Bible. Think about Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, that passage begins by saying, and God tested Abraham and he commanded him to take, you guys know the story, to command him to take his son Isaac and to offer him as a sacrifice. And at the last moment, God stops him because he knew that he was willing to obey. And God says, now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your son, your only son whom you love from me. Abraham passed the test. Think about the book of Job, right? It's 42 chapters of a test of faith where Job went through trials of various kinds and God tested his faith. Now for a real negative example, think about Israel in the wilderness. It says that God tested them to see if they would live by bread alone or by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Guess what? They failed that test. Read the book of Numbers. They failed that test. And now in all of these examples and more, God is not testing people because he needs more information. He's not testing them because he doesn't know them. God knows everything. He's omniscient. But rather, God is testing them to reveal to themselves and to everyone else what the quality of their faith is. And God uses the testing of our faith to refine our faith, to strengthen our faith, to grow our faith. This is what it says uh, very, in a passage very similar to the one we're studying. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Peter is saying is when your faith is tested, when you go through the various trials, God is using that testing to refine your faith. In the same way that fire refines gold, so the testing of your faith refines you. It refines your faith, and I mean think about fire for a minute. Fire either refines or destroys, determining depending on what's in the fire. If gold's in the fire, it's purified, it's refined. But you throw wood in the fire, or hay in the fire, it's consumed. In the same way, when we go through trials, when our faith is tested, if our faith is genuine, if it's authentic, then all the trial can do is refine us. It strengthens us. It makes our faith more genuine that will result in praise when Jesus returns, Peter teaches us. But if our faith is not real, the fire of testing can destroy us. Think about what Jesus says, the parable of the sower, right? When, the, when those thorns come, it chokes out. When the trials of this world come, it chokes it out. So here is what fascinates me about this verse verse three. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This was one of those light bulb moments for me as I studied this passage and meditated on it the last two weeks. I'd always assumed that when it comes to suffering and trials as Christians, that our calling is to persevere through the trial. Our calling is in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the suffering, God is calling us to persevere. And listen, that's true. But James ups the ante. This verse says more than that. He's not just saying you need to persevere in the midst of trials when you meet them. He says something even weirder than that. He says the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So the trial is not merely the obstacle that we are to persevere through. The trial is the instrument that God is using to grow us. We think of trials as obstacles. We think of trials as something that God needs to overcome so that I can get past it. James is saying trials are opportunities, Trials are the very things that God is using to grow us, to mature us, to bring about steadfastness in us. I think that's amazing. If only we could have that same perspective, we would have so much more joy in our lives. It produces steadfastness. You know, this steadfastness, it's the idea of an active endurance that we have because of our faith in Christ. It's more than what we would mean by patience. One commentator called it faith that has been stretched out. It is faith that has stood the test of time, this steadfastness. It is faith that will endure no matter what because of the hope that we are grounded in. I mean, many of you are living examples of this. How many times can you look back on a trial that you went through and while you wouldn't wanna go back to that season, it is obvious the change that God brought in your life as a believer, how much you have grown through that trial. I know that's been the case in my life. And listen, We aren't enabled to have joy in trials when we know that God is at work in the trial to strengthen our faith. And here's why this matters for us. I think that we tend to go through life with this whack-a-mole perspective on our trials. You ever played whack-a-mole? You know, you go to the fair, you go to a carnival, you get the bat and you got the mole, he pops up and you try to whack the mole. Now whack-a-mole. And if you're quick enough to get the mole, which you're probably not, what's gonna happen the second you whack that first mole? Another mole is just gonna pop right back up. We live our lives thinking if once I get through this season, once I get through this trial, then I can have joy. For now, I just gotta put my head down and get through it. Once I get through this phase, once I get through this season, then I can finally have joy in my life. And here, I'll get back to normal. So, first of all, there's no such thing as normal. <laughs> Second of all, If we constantly live our lives like that, we're never gonna have joy because even if we beat this one, another one's gonna come up. We can only have joy in our lives when our joy transcends our circumstances. When our joy is not dependent on our circumstances. We can have joy even in the trials when we understand how God is using them. And verse four explains the final reason why that's true. We can count on our joy when we know that God is at work and when we trust the process. When we trust the process, Verse four says, "And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." So this steadfastness that was produced in you through the trial, this increased faith that you have because of the trial, let it have its full effect. Don't give up. Don't look for a shortcut. Don't try to short-circuit the process. Don't wave the white flag. He's saying continue to persevere in the trial. Continue to walk in faith and to walk in obedience through the trial until God sees fit to move you on. Why? He says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So first of all, I think the word perfect is probably not the best translation here. I prefer translations that say mature. I don't, think faith, I don't think that James is teaching that if we uh, persevere in trials, then we will become morally perfect in this life. The Bible teaches as long as we're here on this side of glory, we're gonna be sinners. We're gonna be imperfect. The idea rather is maturity, that as we persevere in trials, we are going to continually grow in maturity as believers, that we will be complete. We will have a single-minded, passionate devotion to Jesus in every area of our lives, and that we will be lacking in nothing. We will have everything that we need as fully grown up, mature believers to be the people that God has called us to be and to advance his kingdom for his glory. To summarize all of that, it means we need to trust the process. It means that if you're walking through a trial this morning, you need to trust that God knows what he's doing, that God's sovereign, that he's good, that he's wise, and that we might not know why God has us going through this trial, but we can trust that he's doing it for a reason, and that reason is to make us more like Jesus, that he's using the trial to produce steadfastness in us. We will only learn how to view our trials as opportunities to glorify God when we understand that God's ultimate goal in our lives is to make us more like Jesus. Romans 8:29, from those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That is God's ultimate purpose in your life: to be conformed to the image of his son, to be made more like Jesus. Until we learn to view our lives in the same way, we will never have joy in trials. Trials will be seen as obstacles to joy rather than opportunities for joy until we learn how to view it from God's perspective. So let me encourage you, whatever trial it is that you're facing this morning, trust the process. Trust that God is at work in you to sanctify you, to purify you, to test your faith, to make you more like Jesus. Trust the process. So let me leave us this morning with two final takeaways. I got two takeaways this morning, and one's really easy and one's really hard. So do you want the easy one first or the hard one first? All right, we'll start with the easy one. The easy one is this, read James. Seriously, that's it, read James. I want us all to go home this week and read through the book of James. It's 108 verses. It takes about 10 or 15 minutes to read through. You can read through it on your own. You can read through it with your small group. You can read through it with your family. Just read through this entire letter together. As you're starting a new sermon series, it's the best way to get prepared, just to know the whole letter. And let me encourage you, read it in such a way that you're highlighting the verses that stand out to you. You're meditating on them. I believe that God wants to use this book in a powerful way in our church family this summer. So let's immerse ourselves in the teaching of this book and a good place to start is just to read it. Okay, that's, I'm asking for like 15 minutes of your week. That's the easy one. You ready for the hard one? This one's gonna take more than 15 minutes. Rejoice always. This one's 24-7. Rejoice always. Count it all joy always. This is what the apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord Always. Again, I will say rejoice. I love that in case they missed it with the always thing. Again, I will say rejoice. And I think that always maybe especially means in the midst of trials. Rejoice, especially when you're facing a trial because God is using that. As Paul wrote again in Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance And endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's not just that God wants you to walk through suffering and continue to be faithful in it, though that's true. It's that God is using even the suffering itself to make you more like Jesus. God is so sovereign that even what the enemy would mean for evil, he is using for good even the evil and the suffering and all of the mess in your life. What is a sword in Satan's hand is a scalpel in God's hand to do surgery on your soul, to make you more like Jesus. Do you believe that this morning? Can you say, along with Joseph, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Can you look at the trials in your life and say that? That God means it for good that he means it to refine your faith, that he means it to strengthen your faith, that he means it to produce an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. That's what he's doing. And it's only when we believe that that we can count it all joy. And even in this, even in this, we can't do that on our own. The message of this sermon this morning is not go out of here and quit being sad about it when bad things happen. That's not what the message is this morning. The only way we can have joy in the midst of trials, that is supernatural. That does not come naturally to us. The only way we can do this is by faith in Jesus Christ. The only way we can do this is by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Because here's the crazy thing. Jesus is our model of counting it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds and enduring until the end. Jesus is the one who in the garden of Gethsemane said, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but Lord, what you will. He submitted to the will of the Father when he is facing the most incredible trial imaginable. He's facing a trial that makes all of our trials look like nothing in comparison, the eternal wrath of God on the cross for the sins of humanity. He faced that trial. And yet when he went to the cross, you know what Hebrews twelve two says? It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus was able to count the cross all joy because of the joy that was set before him. And because of that, he was able to endure the most horrible trial you can imagine, And if Jesus was able to endure that trial for us, then by faith in him, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we really can begin to count it all joy when we face lesser trials. Because God proved on the cross that if he can take the most horrible event imaginable, the death of the son of God and use it for good, for the ultimate good, then why do we doubt that God can use our smaller trials for good as well? We need to know This perspective, we need to know that God is at work in our trials to make us more like Jesus, to conform us to the image of his son. And it is then and only then that we will be able to count it all joy. So, whatever you're facing this morning, whether it's brokenness in a relationship, maybe a difficult marriage, Maybe difficulty in parenting. Maybe a loved one that doesn't know Christ that you've been praying for. Maybe it's health related. Maybe you're walking through a season of ill health and whatever shape that takes. Maybe it's financial. Maybe you're looking at the economy and and you're looking at the inflation and and whatever else. Maybe you lost your job and, and you're walking through a trial financially right now. Maybe, I don't know, you fill in the blank. Various kinds. Whatever trial you're walking through this morning, We can learn to count it all joy when we trust that God is good, that God is wise, that God is sovereign, and that he is using every moment of it to make us more like Jesus. So I'm gonna invite the worship team to come now. And my hope and my prayer for us as we go from here this morning is that we will be empowered by God's word through the spirit to have a faith that is authentic, even in the midst of trials, that these trials would produce steadfastness in us as we keep on following Jesus. And listen, at this point, I wanna invite our prayer team to come as well. And listen, if you came in this morning and you are facing a serious trial, one of the best things that you can do when you're facing a trial is to bring it before the throne of grace in prayer because the Lord loves to answer the prayers of his children. So if you have a trial that's burdening your heart this morning, I'd encourage you to come and pray with one of these folks during this last song, after the service. They'd love to talk with you and pray with you about that. So it's my prayer, church, that as we study this book together this summer, that our faith would be made stronger, that we'd be encouraged in our faith and that we wouldn't be the same people as we are today. Let's close with prayer. Oh Lord, we love you. We praise you. We praise you, Lord, that you are faithful, Lord, even in the trial, Lord, even in the storm. You are always there with us and you promised, Lord, to work all things together for good for those that love you and are called according to your purpose. So Father, help us to see things from your perspective. Help us to value the work that you are doing in our hearts, the sanctifying work, Lord, even more than our own desires and our own dreams. Lord, work in us, draw us closer to you. Make us more like Christ. Lord, for those of us this morning who are hurting or are burdened with a trial, Lord, strengthen our faith, refine us. Refine our faith so that it will be like pure gold, Lord, not like wood that is consumed. Make us more like you. We love you, Lord, and we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and close this thing.